morning I'll be returning to do a second part of the Psalm 103 message that I started some weeks ago. I'm going to back up and take a broader view, so I think anyone who didn't happen to be here for the first won't feel like they're jumping into the second half of a movie that they hadn't seen before. Uh, Join me in praying. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this new opportunity to hear from you. And I just ask that you will help us to hear from you, your word. I pray that you'll blow away the chaff that is uh, unhelpful, but water the seeds of your gospel that they may bear fruit in our hearts. And uh, we give you thanks. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a, uh, as a farm boy in Iowa, I was blessed with many opportunities to see and experience the mountains of Colorado. My family uh, regularly went west to escape the cornfields of Iowa. And uh, during my, uh, following my graduation at Iowa State, I was working at a YMCA of the Rockies just outside of Winter Park, if you know where that is. I was working on a maintenance crew while attending a a leadership uh, training program, ministry training program. And it was a a wonderful summer. It was kind of my summer of summers, if you will, interacting with peers from uh, around the country and around the world. We were hiking, we were biking, and a lot of time reading and studying God's word while staring into the majestic mountains. Very memorable experience. A few years later and on the other side of the globe, my wife-to-be, whom I had not yet met, was living in Nepal and she was doing her research at the time for her degree. And she tells of a somewhat mystical experience of hiking in the mighty peaks of of, uh, Mount Everest. And as she was hiking, you're often in the midst of the clouds at that elevation. So even though you're in the midst of the mountains, you you can't see them for the clouds. But occasionally you get a, a glimpse of them. And there were times when you couldn't see anything any of the mountains in front of you, but once in a while you'd see this tall peak that would appear above the clouds with the clouds below. So it was this, this kind of mystic floating mountain way up high. Um, again, something that one doesn't forget. So I'm inviting you this, to think this morning on the beauty of God and who he portrays himself to be as a, as a glorious mountain, tall and grand, which shouts majestic. And as we look to that mountain and see its beauty, we're reminded to uh, bless him for who he is. All right, please uh, stand with me as I read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You may be seated. David calls on his heart and mind, in fact, all that is within him, to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Then he paints five quick brush strokes to remind himself, to remind his heart and mind motivations for which to praise him and bless who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. A God who forgives, who heals, who redeems, who crowns, who satisfies. That's kind of the review of part one. So if that's enough for you, you can dismiss early and have an early fellowship time. Um, those broad brush strokes which David paints become a, a backdrop. It's a beautiful sunset lighting up the clouds, yet we're craving more foreground details. And what follows in this psalm are beautiful foreground details that give us a more complete picture of who God is. In verse 6 we read, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
And this verse feels to me like a, a banner flying over this passage, a, a reminder of God's character throughout the Bible. We read in Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the mighty man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises righteousness and justice on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God delights in righteousness and justice. Not only does he delight in it, but the verse says he works it out. He exercises it. Uh, Isaiah 59, the Lord looked and saw there was no man to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He is a God who brings it to pass when he sees that there is no other to do it. That verse, uh, verse 6, also speaks of God working righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. And the opening scene of Exodus is of God's people who are slaves in Egypt, who cry out to their God to be rescued and so he does. We also see throughout the scriptures the refrain that God is concerned for the welfare of the fatherless, the widow, the alien, and the poor. So our God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. And together we can say, O soul, bless the Lord who works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. In verse 7 we read, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. In the prior message I spoke of how God met Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai and revealed his holy name. And his revealed name wasn't just a, a word by which he wanted to be named. My name is Jason. It, it does have a meaning. It means healer. But it wasn't given to me because it reflects who I was. My parents didn't spend lots of time thinking about who to name me because of my character. I had my name at birth, right? The name Yahweh, on the other hand, was imbued with meaning. And from the scriptural context of the uh, revealing ceremony, at the burning bush, God's name means the God who sees and hears, the God who remembers, and the God who comes down to deliver his people from slavery to a good and spacious place. And it is to this name, to this God, that we tell our soul, our, tell our soul, Bless this God, the God who revealed himself and delivered the Israelites from slavery into a spacious place of abundance. And he's still in the delivery business. Look out, FedEx. 
We must be ever so thankful for the scriptures that God has revealed himself to us. Prior to the Reformation, or the printing press for that matter, most people had little to no access to the scriptures except what was spoken by the priest. Of course, now we have a large choice of translations and paraphrases and different versions of study Bibles and on and on. In this country, many in the world still have little to no access in other places. So we must be thankful for God's revelation of himself. This is a brief aside about how God reveals himself. Our family recently read a small uh, Heroes of the Faith biography about Amy Carmichael for bedtime reading. Amy, if you're not familiar, was a missionary in India in the early 1900s. We enjoyed reading about her life, which led to reading another story written by Amy called uh, Mimosa. And Mimosa was born into a very poor Hindu family in Tamil Nadu of southern India. And at a young age, she visited the compound of Amy Carmichael in, in Donavur for an afternoon with her father. Uh, her father and she were visiting her older sister, who was staying at the compound, um, mostly against the will of her father. But every time her father tried to bring her out of the compound, something happened, and, and he was not able to bring her out. Uh, during that afternoon, Mimosa heard from Amy about a God who loved her, and she, Mimosa, decided at that time to follow after that God. Her father would not let his young daughter Mimosa stay in the compound, for to him it was shameful to even have one daughter who could not follow the practices of Hinduism. He certainly wasn't going to let his other daughter stay there. So for Mimosa, this began a long period of living as a follower of the God who loved her, with only an afternoon's revelation about him. And you, you question how an afternoon's amount of revelation could bring change in this girl's life, and yet she was changed. From the inside out, she followed her God in a land that abused, mocked, tormented her for not living according to her caste, according to the customs of the land. But she chose to live according to her understanding of the revelation she'd received and by the guiding of his spirit. And when Mimosa returned to Donavur to meet Amy more than 20 years later, Amy was dumbfounded by Mimosa's dependence upon the God whom she learned to trust for guiding, for healing, for peace and provision. Let me just read a couple paragraphs here. This is Mimosa speaking. Oh God, she said aloud, and the words seemed to rise through the thin blue air above her. This is shortly after she had come to follow him. Oh God, my husband has deceived me, his brother has deceived me, even my mother has deceived me, but you will not deceive me. 
Then she waited a little, looking up and stretched out her arms, declared, Yes, they have all deceived me, but I am not offended with you. Whatever you do is good. What should I do without you? You are the giver of health and strength and will to work. Are not these things better than riches or people's health? And again, she waited a little. Then kneeling there in the open field, she drew the loose end of her sari around and spread it out, holding it open before the Lord. In some such way, Ruth must have held her mantle when Boaz poured into it six measures of barley. To the Eastern women, it means all that ever can be expressed of humble, loving expectation. For he said, go not empty. Thus Mimosa knelt. You will not deceive me. The sun beat down on her. The little young cotton plants about her drooped their soft green leaves. But she knelt on, heeding nothing, her sari still spread out before her God. I am an emptiness for you to fill. Not one scripture did she know. There was nothing from the book of books for the spirit to take and show to her at that moment. But his resources are limitless. And back to her troubled mind came the memory of a wise word of her father's. He who planted the tree will water it. Yes, God was her heavenly gardener. Had not he planted his little tree? Would he not water it? She dropped her sari and rose. Then what happened? Was it, as in that older story, that God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and went and drank of it? Suddenly all her weariness passed. She knew herself refreshed, invigorated. He had heard her. God had heard. She was not battling along as best she could, lonely, desolate. She had her God. Oh, what should I do without you? The words rose like a triumph song with the little gesture of the folded hands, which is the universal Indian amen. She bowed her head and stood a moment drinking from the waters of comfort. An amazing picture of God revealing even through ways that we don't know so much of. Join with me in blessing our God who has and continues to reveal himself to his people. In verse 7 of Psalm 103, David's reference seems to be generally referring to the way God reveals himself to his people. But as we read verse 8, we see that David also has a specific place and time in mind. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This verse is one of the most quoted verses of the Old Testament and originates in the story of Exodus where Moses asks God if he might see his glory. The context of the story takes place after Moses went up to receive the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments written by God. And as Moses comes down the mountain with Joshua, Moses learns that the Israelites had been busy violating the very rules of the covenant which God had just written in stone. Aaron had asked the people for all of their gold trinkets and a gold calf was formed for them to worship. At seeing the rebellion of the people, Moses threw down the first set 
of tablets at the base of the mountain and they were broken. Moses intervenes for the people and prepares two new tablets of stone to bring up the mountain that he may receive God's written law again. And we read from Exodus 33, 18 to 23, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then jumping to Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Verse 8 is clearly taken from this passage More than that, it also seems like David is leaning into this passage as he writes the psalm, reflecting on it, unpacking it, and shining a light on particular parts. David recalls these attributes of God from the Exodus 34 passage. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and a God who forgives does not deal with us as our sins deserve. But you will note as we proceed that David has not captured all that was in the Exodus passage. In Psalm 103, David does not include the part about God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children. Why is it that David hasn't brought this forward? I think one reason is that he is writing to a different audience. The Exodus passage would have been written as a revelation to all the Israelites about who their God is when they looked to the mountain of God or saw the pillar of cloud hanging above the tabernacle. They could reflect and be in awe of their God and reflect on who he revealed himself to be. To whom was David writing the psalm to? David leaves some interesting repeated clues, which we'll come to later in the message. But that aside, there's another reason that I think David doesn't bring forward the statement of not clearing the guilty. In Psalm 103, David is pointing to something new, that of which we read in Jeremiah 31. In those days, 
They shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. In writing Psalm 103, David seems to shine a spotlight on two particular attributes of God's character, which I'd like to spend some time looking at with you. The first is God's steadfast love. The Hebrew word that gets translated steadfast love is And it's a word that isn't easily translated because it combines concepts of love, generosity, and enduring commitment. In our English Bible, it gets translated many ways. Mercy, grace, favor, loyalty, covenant loyalty, believing loyalty. You'll note that loyalty is an important part of the meaning of kesed. Although the word is not used in the text below, the loyal love that Ruth expresses to Naomi is a helpful example of chesed between people. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In an example of God's chesed towards his people, I quote a blog titled um, Hebrew Word Lessons. It says, the positive form of chesed is the perfect word to tie into the marriage imagery because it is the devotional love of longevity. It is a love far beyond lust and desire, it is a covenant connection of souls. Marriage metaphor permeates the entire Old Testament and New Testament, and there's a beautiful passage in the book of Hosea which highlighted God's wedding vows to his people. Hosea 2, 19 to 20, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in favor. That word is Chesed in Hebrew, and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know Yahweh. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for love was not used in, the, in God's wedding vows, but rather chesed. Love is an emotion, and emotions can wax and wane. Chesed reflected a boundless, loyal, everlasting love in action. And this is the kind of love God has for his people. It's a much, much 
fuller, grander love. In Psalm 103, David highlights God's steadfast love, or chesed, by referring to it four times. Verse 4, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 8, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Our God doesn't just love, but has committed himself in loyal love to his people. That is one of the reasons why we, why we read verses like this in the New Testament. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Because of God's steadfast love, we see in Psalm 103 that he will not always contend with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. And to the mountain of God's beauty, let's say, Soul, bless the Lord for his amazing, steadfast, loyal love to us. That was the first picture. The second is David's highlighting in Psalm 103 of God's compassion. Compassion is from the Hebrew word rachum, and it is interestingly associated with the word for womb. So mothers, you understand better than fathers the feelings you have towards one growing in your womb. I remember when my wife was expressing her feelings towards one growing within her. I, on the other hand, while anticipating the baby to come, didn't have the sense of emotional connection yet before the baby was born. Parents, you remember watching your children climbing on something after you've warned them that that's dangerous, and then when they suddenly fall and get hurt, how do you respond? Do you burst into laughter and say, ha, told you so? Um, surely not out loud, at least. Um, but as they're breaking down in tears, your heartstrings are being pulled, and you might be thinking, foolish child, but your heart goes out in compassion as you see the scraped knee, and then you do what's necessary to care for them and comfort them. Uh, in the Bible Project video that describes uh, God's compassion from Exodus 34, I learned that the Hebrew word rakum invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. The word conveys intense emotion, but also action. And it's used most often in the Bible to describe God's actions that are motivated by his emotions. Think for a moment. The Israelites have turned away and turned away and turned away from God's love. And ultimately they ended up in exile in Babylon. Something God warned them of many times over. How would we expect God to respond? Whew, they're a hard-headed lot. Indeed, they were stiff-necked. But 
listen to what God says in Isaiah. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Amazingly, it is at this time that God compares himself to a mother full of, of compassion toward her baby. And in Psalm 103, verses 13 through 16, we get a picture of God's compassion. Verse 13, as a father or mother, I might add, shows compassion to his, her children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. We read in verse 14, He remembers that we are dust. And in the Garden of Eden, God pronounced the curse to Adam because of his sin. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I see this picture of God the Father stepping back and looking at mankind, seeing us for who we are, sinful, rebellious, proud, unthankful, but weak. God's response is compassion. In verse 15 to 16, we read that man's days are like grass. How do you like that comparison? You work a full day in the office or under the sun or taking care of children, and the end assessment is his days are like grass. What are you talking about, Willis? That's not a nice comparison. And yet, God sees us for who we are. From his perspective over all of eternity, he recognizes mankind's frailty, brevity, vanity, and amazingly, God's expression is that of compassion as a loving parent towards their child, an intense emotion that turns into an action of love. Join with me in blessing our Lord who is compassionate. He knows us like we don't know ourselves. He sees everything. And yet our God sees us and responds in compassion. Now back to the question about David's audience for this psalm. Three times in this psalm, David states that God's steadfast love and his compassion are shown to those who fear him. Verse 11 as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. David hasn't just sprinkled these phrases throughout the psalm willy-nilly. He's repeated the phrase three times to highlight its importance and, and bring it to the fore. What beautiful promises for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear him? 
Uh, we could do another word study, but in this psalm, I think David points to a key element. Um, in 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Fearing him has many aspects, not the least of which is following Moses' response when he saw God's glory in Exodus 34. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. But another aspect is this in verse 18, to keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Fearing him and following after him in obedience go hand in hand. Thankfully, we have in Christ one who has obeyed perfectly and whose perfect righteousness can be our covering as we put our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us and walk in obedience in fear. In Christ, God has worked his perfect righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed by sin's slavery and who are called by him. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In Christ, God has perfectly expressed his loyal, steadfast love to mankind. It's because of what God has done in Christ that we read that God demonstrated his own love steadfast love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and that nothing can separate us from God's steadfast love in Christ in Christ we see Yahweh's deep compassion become human Jesus proclaims in his opening message of Luke 4 the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he ministers to the sick and needy, we sense his compassion. At the end of this psalm, we look back and <clears throat> we see a mountain of reasons to <clears throat> bless God. In contrast to our sin, our lack of steadfast love, our lack of compassion, God's commitment and love is expressed in absolutes and extremes. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. But the steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. In this Advent season, join me in looking to the beautiful mountain of God's majesty, blessing him for all the many reasons. As the song says, 10,000 reasons for my heart to find and experiencing his peace as we anticipate Christ's coming this season. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you embodied, you 
steadfast love and compassion of your Father towards us. Help us to grab onto that. And as we anticipate your coming, so we remember your coming of, of old and anticipate your coming in the future. Open our eyes to you, open our hearts to you, and uh, help us to bless you for who you are and for what you've done. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.